And uh, Kevin Kingray talks about his all-boys band, but uh, Kendra said she has her all-girls band this, this morning. But thank you, guys. Brilliant, brilliant. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you open us up uh, to your love, that uh, you also open us up to the world of, of pain that is around us. Uh, when we want to close down, that you open us up to your forgiveness, that when um, uh, worry wants us to um, close off our insides, that you help us to see the future that you have for us, and that it not be just part of a figment of imagination, but we grasp the reality of that. And Father, in these times, when we're times when we're experiencing loneliness or um, or unworthiness, we ask that you just really reveal to us again that uh, we have um, eternal value. That just by the fact that we are partakers of the divine knowledge and the divine nature, according to Peter. And so, Father, we ask that you draw us into the living love of Jesus that is available to us right now, right this moment. We ask that you incline our hearts, that you lead our hearts to follow your way, that you lead our hearts to seek your kingdom, to love our enemies, to watch and pray, to remove fear and put our trust in you, that we obey the seeking and the knocking and the opening of the kingdom and know that it will be open to us. So Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we will truly be your people that we will be a people that signals uh, to the world that something amazing has happened, that something amazing has happened 2,000 years ago that created a new way of living, a new way of, of life, and a new world, and we look forward to its culmination. So, Father, we give the time to you this morning as we look into your word and ask that you use it in our, in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our morning this morning, our mini-service series, I mean, of uh, what do we do on, uh, what does Sunday morning have to do with Monday morning? And last week we talked about, uh, about work. There we go. Uh, and uh, just how noble work is, and, and, uh, but what do we do when work doesn't love you back? Even if you may love what you do, what do we do when it doesn't want to love you back? Um, Several years, when I was in seminary, there was a guy, a friend of mine, and I was trying, it really wasn't a great friend because I was trying to recall his name this week and I couldn't remember it. So I'm just going to say this guy, unfortunately. He was a little bit older than most of us uh, in the dorm. He had been a pastor for several years and, uh, and then left and went into the insurance business. Uh, he said that he had just gotten up to here with the pastorate. He was uh, frustrated and... Um, just completely burned out, and after some uh, series, a sequence of, of really bad weeks, he just retired and went into the insurance business. And I said, well, why are you back here working on a master's degree, you know, wanting to be a pastor again? He said, well, when I was in the insurance business, uh, I realized that insurance salesmen have bad days too. And, and he's right. I mean, it doesn't matter what we're in. We're all going to have some bad days. And uh, I had, after I got out of college, I had started, I bought a, uh, a lawn maintenance and minimal landscaping business from a couple of friends. 
And that's what I was doing, just trying to make money, decide what I wanted to do from then on, what I wanted to do in the future. And uh, so then even when I started seminary, I kept it and it's to pay the school bills. And uh, I had one job, one account in a hospital in Dallas. And it was my biggest account. And uh, one day I was in my big lawnmower, you know, those big lawnmowers. You see people like over here at Hawks Ridge and here at Horizon, these guys, you know, these big lawnmowers. And I'm going along and I run over a sprinkler head and the, and the pieces just shattered through, and then the water just started seeping up and flooding all around it, you know, so I had to go let the maintenance guys know, and, you know, they took care of it, and so, okay, it's fine. Well, a few weeks later, I was at there at the, the hospital again, and I did it again. And a stream of words came out of my mouth that you would not want to hear your pastor say. Um, and uh, not only that, I lost the account. And there are times which you just have to say, yes, I, um, you, you just, you want to cuss out, cuss the word, cuss the work out, cuss somebody out, cuss your boss out. You just want to cuss, the, the string of cuss words come out because of what the job has done to you or, or what has happened to you. And, uh, and that naturally happens. And last week, I tried to, you know, paint this idea that, that work is part of the creation. We are called to work. We, it is a noble thing. We are created to work. We are called to be creators and cultivators in God's creation. That's what we are called to do. And that our work is actually an act of worship. That our work is to glorify God. Uh, that our work is for the common good. And uh, we live before the face of God, and that includes our jobs. And I can paint this noble picture of, of work, but sometimes we just want to cuss it out. And uh, we just can't deal with it. And sometimes we lose our jobs for whatever reason. We get laid off or we get fired or, or we're no longer able to work. We're incapable of work. Whatever reason, we're able to give it up and it can lead us into despair and depression and, and deep sadness. Uh, when we came back from Mexico to Iowa, to, so Sue could be close to her mom who was in her years of battling cancer. Uh, I'm going to embarrass her for a minute. I always say that Sue is, was the better missionary of the two of us, and I don't mean that with any false humility. I just say that because it's true. Uh, she had a real knack and a real calling to speak spiritual things in a very natural, non-threatening, non-judgmental way to people who are... Who are Roman Catholic, to people who were atheists, to some of those uh, agnostic artists that she ran around with, uh, even a, a transgender woman she made friends with and was able to speak these things with, in a very non-threatening way. And I think that grief of moving back was probably one of the hardest things she had to do, was feeling like she had lost friends and lost her calling. And that was very difficult, wasn't it? <laughs> was one of the, I think probably she grieved that more than anything else. And sometimes you just want to cuss out the lack of job that you have. And, and you just can't, you're just so angry or frustrated or depressed or despair. One time Steve Jobs was speaking at a um, uh, graduation. And he said, he told the graduating class that if you really want to do great work, love what you do. And that's a very nice sentiment but it's simply not true. That the only way to do great work is to love what you do, that's just not true. And I think he was, it was very nice to say and very inspiring to say, but I wonder how many 
students left in the next year or so were in despair because they weren't doing what they truly loved to do. They didn't think they were doing what they were supposed to do. And I wonder how many of them fell back into depression because, well, gee, I'm not doing what I love. But even if we do what we love, sometimes it doesn't love us back. And even if we're doing what we love, there are days where we absolutely hate it. I, I used to have these days called, I hate Mexico days. And I'd be, be frustrated because of the driving, or the way that the driving and standing in line to pay my electric bill or, or whatever, whatever. And I would try to find something that I liked to do that I enjoyed about Mexico. And so I would go have my shoe shine downtown. You could get that done for like 15 cents. And I liked it. I read the paper and sit there. And, and that's one of the things I do. And, and Sue used to joke that there were weeks where Tommy had the shiniest shoes in town. <laughs> There are some days where it just doesn't love you back. And that's, that's the way the world is. We know it's not the way it ought to be. Why is that? Well, because of a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 3. He says, and to, to the man he said, God speaking, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your you shall, you shall you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. We know from the Bible that work is not part of the curse. He commanded Adam and Eve to work before they rebelled, before they sinned, before they decided they wanted to be gods themselves. But after that, there's no doubt that that has radically impacted our work, our life. It has completely altered the complexity and the complexion of our jobs. There's no doubt that it has impacted that. And so we may enter our career or a job or a new job or whatever it is, start a new business or whatever that is, and we may have great ideals and great expectations and all these illusions about how we're going to serve God in this business or how we're going to serve God in the financial sector or as a lawyer or whatever. And yet after a while, sometimes those, those expectations die, the ideals disappear, and the illusions become disillusions. What do we do? And it's all because of this, our rebellion. We know in our bones that this is not the way it's supposed to be, that our work is not what it ought to be, that somehow it is out of whack. And we know that there is something wrong in the world. We know there is something wrong inside of us. We know there is something wrong among us. Something is not Right, we are all out of whack. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Tumnus tells Lucy that the white witch has Narnia under her thumb, and therefore it's always winter and never Christmas. Imagine that, he says. Always winter but never Christmas. For a guy for like me, for a Texan like me, that is pretty miserable. That it's always winter. But that's what it is. That's what it feels like. 
that there is something, something wrong. And so things do start to fall apart. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Ecclesiastes where the teacher says he's looking for this and he's looking for, for meaning and purpose in life. He's looking for something that will tell us that life is worth living. And so he explores wisdom and learning. He explores uh, a pleasure and he also explores work. And he begins his book like this. I preached a sermon on this years ago and I'm sure you all remember it. But, um, <clears throat> but he starts his book like this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Which is a key phrase in the book. Generations come and generations go, but earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun set, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. The streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from where they return again. And I don't know if you can catch the theme of this. I'd Probably not the way I read it, but just slow down and listen to it. And he says, he says, generations come and generations go. The sun rises, the sun set. The wind goes round and round and round and round. The streams go on and on and on. Isn't life wonderful? That's what he's trying to say. Under the sun. So what I want to do this morning is just talk about some areas where things do seem to fall apart in our work and then give us a glimmer of hope by looking at Philemon. And we'll look at that a little bit more in depth next week. So when the, the Genesis says that it's cursed, the ground is cursed, it's not like the Wizard of Oz, okay? God is not saying that he puts a voodoo spell on them or he's not saying he's out for revenge. That's not what he means. What he means is that this is just out of whack. This is, not, this is not the way it ought to be. So when things fall apart, our work can become painfully difficult. Because of the corruption on the, on the creation, it can be incredibly difficult. That it's harder than it needs to be. That we are dealing with a broken world. And in, because of that, we try all kinds of ways, humans try all kinds of ways to manage a broken world. We have economic philosophies, we have government uh, programs, we have uh, uh, you know, good uh, uh, economic competition, uh, anything that we can think of to try to deal with this broken world. And so, but at the same time, we face these, these breakneck competition, we face, we face litigation, we face regulations, we face backstabbing, we face political maneuvering, all kinds of things in this big attempt to do this. It's a big attempt to do something, but work can be painfully, painfully difficult. I started working in a restaurant when I was 15, and I was a dishwasher. And it was a big, pretty big restaurant, and we had this massive dishwasher and the, fact, and the name of the factory is called Hobart. And uh, so we, it was just, we would do 300 dinners a night. So it was a pretty big restaurant. And, uh, and you were on the bottom of the totem pole when you were working the Hobart. That's what they called it. They didn't call you dishwasher. They called you working the Hobart. One night, I was working the Hobart with a guy. With a, with a, a, we had become friends, sort of. Uh, an older man named Juan who spoke no English. But we became co-workers in that. And uh, one night, this is, I hope this isn't going to gross you out, but one night, 
a woman was in the bathroom and threw up all in the sink. Good food, right? <laughs> so anyway, who are we going to get to clean it up? You get the guys working the Hobart. And so Jawan and I went in there, and we went, I don't know, I don't know. We finally ended up doing it because somebody had to do it. But you get the guys working the whole. We were below the busboys, okay? Now, that's just a little minor thing that I did not like doing. I really feel for the people who have the job to pick up roadkill on the highways. To me, that's a, that's a job that's way too difficult to do. But not only that, we have jobs that are just backbreaking, that affect our health. Sometimes there are even accidents. I had an uncle who lost an arm in a farming accident. Work is more difficult than it really has to be, than when it really should be. It is just hard to do sometimes. And I don't care if you're working the Hobart or if you're a CEO of a big corporation, it can be really, really hard. And you've got people to have to work with. Our work can feel painfully pointless meaningless, empty. I always think of that Rolling Stones song, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try. I mean, these are the guys who have fame, money, everything they want, and I can't get no satisfaction. Double negative there. But the thing is, we want to have these big, big lives and yet they do not satisfy. And what the author of Ecclesiastes says, that's because it's all under the sun. And he kind of comes to a conclusion at the end of the book that we have to go beyond that, beyond under the sun. And I'm finding out that we find meaningless, meaning and, 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 and get rid of the emptiness when we focus on our small lives. And we think we're going to do great things for God. We're going to think we're going to do great things in the financial sector or agriculture or education or whatever. But then it really, when it comes down to it, is focusing in on our small lives. And our lives actually become bigger by doing that. A couple of years ago, Sue and I were reading this book together called A Gentleman in Moscow. Fantastic book. And uh, she made this observation that in the life before, it's about this man who was a nobleman in Russia. And, of course, he went to all the clubs, had the fine restaurants, went to fine drinks, the bars. He, he had the men, and he had this sort of routine that he dealt with, that he lived with. He, had, he was living the life, you know. And, um, and then, the, then the communist revolution came, and he didn't do a crime, so they didn't arrest him and throw him in jail, but they did put him in house arrest in a hotel. So basically, he lived the rest of his life in this hotel. And she makes the observation that his life was out there, but it was really small. It was just going to have drinks and dinner. But in the hotel, he began to notice people and live with people, and his life became huge. I won't spoil how it ends, but his life became much, much bigger. And I finally kind of realized that, that our lives can be from pointless because we think we're going to be doing these great, great things, but actually it becomes bigger when we focus in on what's around us, what's small, what seems to be small in our lives. Our work may become all-consuming. It can take over our lives completely, that we think this is, all in all, this is all in all, and where work actually becomes an idol. 
that it, we become to worship it. An idol is not something that, that you know, when we hear idol, we think of American idol or teen idol, or sometimes we think of primitive people groups who have these idols, these, these construction, these statues or something. That's not idols at all. According to Exodus, an idol is something you bow down to. An idol is something that you imagine or have in your head that, that this is the thing that will fix me. That if I can just get this, then all my problems will be solved. I will have significance. I will have security. I will have satisfaction. I will have beauty. I will have money if I can just get this. And that's an idol. And ironically enough, ironically enough, some of the people that are most susceptible to this idolatry are full-time Christian workers, missionaries, pastors, preachers. I know it because I've seen it and I've done it. Because we think the work is so important. Everything else must take a back seat. Everything else is, is, is peripheral because this is so important. And I hang around other pastors and I just say, can we just talk about football every now and then? Can we just talk about something else besides church? That it can be just become all-consuming and just basically an idol. And idols are not only, they're everywhere. They're not, they're not limited to different, certain areas. They're everywhere. And not only are they everywhere, not only are they pervasive, they're also very powerful. Because they control what we do, because they control our hearts. And our jobs can do this. They not only draw us into idolatry sometimes, they also reveal what is already there in our hearts and what is idolatrous in our hearts. And they are not only pervasive, they are also powerful. And when things fall apart, when our work or our ability to work may have painfully vanished, whether through a layoff, a retirement, being fired, or even our ability because of an illness or chronic pain or grief, I would throw grief in there as well. Last week after we had talked about work and I, I, we came home and, and uh, Sue asked me, do you think, do you think um, chronic pain is work? And I thought about it for a minute, well actually more than that, and I finally concluded, yes, I think it is. I think it is, because it is draining. It can exhaust the person physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It is work. And I would throw grief in there as well. It absorbs everything. We just get exhausted trying to work. Grief is hard work. Pain is hard work. But why do I call it work? Because not only does it sap us of emotional and physical energy, and it, is, and it is exhausting, but it too can serve the purpose of what work is all about. And I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it too can glorify God, how we deal with it. That through pain and through grief, people often find intimacy profound intimacy in life itself, intimacy with God, and intimacy with others. And I wish there was another way. I wish there was another way, but I don't think there is. All of us, all of us will have to work at grief at some point in our lives. 
And many of us will have to work at pain in some time in our lives. And that work, how we do it, can fulfill what God calls us to work at, and that is to proclaim his name, to glorify God, to worship him in spite of it all. and even have more profound effect than if we were producing something. Here in America, we think we have to make, we have to produce, 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 produce. But sometimes this has a more profound effect than building a hundred widgets of whatever. So yes, I would call that work, but it is painful. Our work may have painfully vanished. Eddie Hillison, she, uh, she wrote a diary uh, that's not Anne Frank. She used to help Jews in the time of the, of the Nazi takeover. As they were being rounded up and shipped off, she would do her part to try to help them and save them. And sooner and finally, the Nazis caught up with her, arrested her, and sent her to Auschwitz, where she died. But she kept a diary. And she, in this diary, she talks about how she, she's Jewish herself, but she talked to rabbis, but she also talked to Christians. And how she had this transformation in this life about suffering. And uh, she writes this in her diary. She says, I am not afraid to look suffering straight in the eyes. And at the end of each day, there was always the feeling, I love people so much. Never any bitterness about what was done to them, but always love for those who knew how to bear so much, although nothing had prepared them for such burdens. That's the fallen world we live in. And yet, and yet, the work was done to glorify God and to increase this love in her heart somehow for the people around her. So there is a an alternative, a radical alternative of how to handle these things, to do this. When our ideals die and when our expectations disappear and when our illusions become disillusioned, we want to serve God with great ideas, but there is a way. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted Bill to read Philemon this morning. It's a little letter, a short letter, but he offers this radical alternative to work. It's a little short letter that adds a actually talks about, actually describes this template of how to socially interact, especially in the workplace, especially with others. It, it tells us how to translate the faith into our work. And even though Paul is dealing with a very specific issue, a very specific situation, it, it, it is always the big picture. Paul always maintains the big picture in his mind, the big picture of the new creation, that this is something else, that this is something new. So, to give us some background, and we're not going to expound the book totally, we just don't have the time for that, but I just want to make a couple of points out of this book. It, reading Philemon is like, it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You're just hearing one person speak. And so we don't have all the information we would like to have, but what we do have, what we do know is that Paul was in prison. That Paul was in prison, probably in Ephesus, and he's communicating with Philemon in, in, uh, in Colossae. He's mentioned again in Colossians. And perhaps Philemon uh, came to Ephesus when, maybe when he was in prison and um, 
heard the gospel and came to Christ, and then a church sprang up in, Col in Colossae. And maybe that's where he came in. So Paul is writing him, and he's writing him about this slave, this guy Onesimus, that he came in contact with while he was in prison and led to Jesus. Somehow he became a Christian. Somehow something dramatically, dramatic happened to Onesimus. He, he finally found true freedom. Who was he? He was a runaway slave. He ran away from Philemon. We don't know why. We don't know if he stole something. We don't know if he just got tired of being a slave and he ran away. Uh, we don't know if he just wanted to escape. We don't know. But Paul is dealing with him now, and now he's got to write Philemon. And what's he going to do? Is he going to harbor Onesimus you know, away from us, you know, to kind of protect him? Is he going to tell Onesimus, maybe you should run away and, and get away from here as far as possible? He could have told Philemon and to say, look, you need, to you need to set him free. This is what Jesus would want you to do. He wants to set you free. But he does something really radical instead. He does something that no one else ever thought about because he's got this big picture in his mind of the kingdom of God. He sends him back with a letter. He sends Philemon back with a letter telling Philemon, look, I could tell you what to do. I could order you what to do. But you know what? I want you to think this thing through. I want you to think this thing through, what this is like. What, what does it mean to make a decision as a child of God? What does it mean to be a Christian? And he says, Onesimus, the name means, they would give slaves nicknames in the ancient Near East. And Onesimus was probably a nickname. It means Mr. Useful. He is useful. And Paul's writing Philemon, he says, I know he's Mr. Useful. To you, he's Mr. Useless. He even says he's useless. But I tell you, he's changed. He's a different person. And he says, who knows? This may have been God's working. So that now you have Onesimus wanting to stay with you forever, but not out of coercion, but because of love. And he kind of calls this old idea of, of Deuteronomy, this law where if a slave loved his master so much, he would say, I want to stay here forever, even when it's time to set me free. And so I want to stay here forever, so pierce my ear, and this will mark me forever to be, to be with you. And he's saying, maybe Onesimus will want to come back and stay forever out of love. And so he's doing something incredibly radical. He's, doing, he's asking Philemon and Onesimus to do something unthinkable. He's asking Philemon to receive back a runaway slave, which that, was, that would just shock everyone. And he's asking Onesimus to take the letter back to, to, to Philemon and go back to him. The unthinkable he is asking them to do. No one, no one in the ancient world thought this way. And he's saying that this will be a signal to those around you that God has started something new. He is doing something fresh. He is doing something different. So here's the radical alternative. Just want to mention a few principles here. The gospel provides an alternate storyline for our work. Philemon and Onesimus are now living in a different narrative. They have left the old world, the old world that says, you know, the slaves need to be beaten if they run away or maybe even killed if they run away to a new world where he says, not only do you receive him back as your servant, as a human being that deserves respect, he's, he's going a step further and is doing something really subversive and says, you need to receive him back as a brother. Totally different. 
This is a totally different narrative, a totally different way to live. The gospel gives us a new and rich understanding of life as God's partners. He says we are doing something with God. He even uses the word koinonia there. And koinonia, we usually kind of translate as, as fellowship, like something we drink coffee after church. That's fellowship. That's koinonia. When Paul's using it, he's talking about a commitment, a partnership, that we are partners with God's purposes. We are working with him. And this changes everything. The gospel gives us a new moral compass. We now make decisions differently than we did before. We don't see anyone as the same as we saw them before. We look at them differently. We think through these decisions with wisdom and, and for the good of the world and for the good of others and what God wants us to do with the gospel. We, we have a new moral compass, a new way to make decisions. The gospel radically changes our motive for work. We have a different motive now. It's, it's, a, it's a more durable inner power that motivates us, that gets us through thick and thin and gets us through those bad days, whether we're a pastor or whether we're the insurance salesman, it gets us through those bad days. That it's a, it's a system, a motive that's built on humility and trust. It's a system that's, that's built with an inner power of the Holy Spirit. That's, or this whole scene here in Philemon reminds me of the prodigal son. That... Jesus is saying the son, the, fa the father kind of is the stand-in for God, but the son and the older son, they need, to, they need to think through things through. They live with a different motive than just getting the inheritance. They live, they live differently. What is God's intent? And all of these things in our work must be taken together. We can't just pick one and try to live by that one. They all got to be taken together. The alternate storyline may give us some theological premises and, and, and philosophy of what, what we're doing. That's a good thing. But the gospel gives us a new, rich understanding of what, um, what our life is all about. And this gives us personal power, a personal um, uh, inner peace from the Holy Spirit to do our work. Uh, that gives us a new moral compass to live by some justice rules, some, some social justice of treating people fairly and equitably, and it radically changes our, our motive and our motive for, for doing all these things. It changes how we respond and how do we serve one another, that we are serving God and serving each other. That's what Paul says, that, that do everything as you do it to the Lord. So all of these things give us a new a new way, a radical, a radical alternative. Uh, T.S. Eliot, poet, he said, the end, in my end is the beginning. And what he means by that is if we're on a start a journey, we have to have the destination in mind. Okay, if I want to go to Dallas, then I have to know where I'm going rather than just getting on the highway and driving around and hopefully I'll run into it. We have to know where we're going. And what, I think what Paul is telling Philemon here, we have to have this destination of this new creation, this new earth of what's going through here. And that is our end. That means everything that we do, our belief, our obedience, our family, our work, our marriage, everything is headed in this destination, heading to this, this direction, this way of the new world, the new creation. Eugene Peterson wrote a book a few years ago, probably one of my favorite of his books, called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And I, I love that book. And his point is, well, he writes in the introduction, 
he quotes a poet. He says this, this idea that Christ plays in 10,000 paces comes from, a, comes from a poet named Gerard Hopkins, I believe. And he's, he writes this about it in the introduction. Everyone alive at this moment, most emphatically including you, with no other qualifications than having our eyes open and our lungs taking in air, can give personal witness to this more, capital M, this congruence, capital C, this kingship, capital K, and this mystery, capital M. Christ plays in 10,000 places through you and me in whatever we've been called to do, wherever we've been called to be, and whoever we've been called to become. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Whatever that is, wherever that is, it's this process of humility and trust, of love and reconciliation that signals to the world that this is something different, that nobody else thinks like this. Nobody else does these things, that there is a difference. There is a difference. That people would say this and say, gee, we never thought of doing things like that before. That's really interesting that you would do that. We never thought of that. The Roman Empire was intent on destroying Christianity, and yet it grew like crazy because people around them are going, we never thought of that. We never thought of doing things like that before. And so if Jesus really is our true Lord, if Jesus is the true Lord of creation, the true Lord of the world, that means that there is a fresh way for living. That means there is a fresh way for peace. There is a fresh way for forgiveness. There is a fresh way for hope. There is a fresh way for love. That is the gospel that Paul is preaching in the New Testament, that there is a fresh way of doing things. So when these ideals and these expectations and these illusions disappear, when the ideals become dead, the expectations disappear, and the, and the illusion for, for how we're going to serve God in this great way, and that becomes disillusioned, when that disappears of how we're going to serve God, guess what? That's when we actually become servants of God. That when our life feels like we want to suck and we, it sucks and we want to cuss it out and all that stuff, and that's when we become servants of God in those moments. That's service. That's servants of God. When all the things disappear, of all of our dreams of how we're going to be this big, turn, every, turn the world upside down, and we come back to our lives, and in spite of all of those deaths of ideals and expectations and illustrations and illusions, that's the moment we become servants through thick and thin and serve him. Let's pray together.